Father, the expression of our heart this morning, especially in light of the coming celebration of Christmas, where we anticipate the, the birthday of Jesus and all that, that was accomplished because of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ for us. Thank you for the relationship that we can enjoy because of all that was accomplished through his body and through his blood, through his coming and obedience and fulfillment of promises. And Lord, may that lift our hearts this morning in worship. May the focus of our attention be on Christ. May the object of our affection and worship and praise be Jesus. And may that worship that comes out in singing and in listening and fellowship this morning, may it spill out into life. Life with those uh, with whom we are, we are living in our community, we're working in our workplaces, we're studying as fellow classmates and students. Lord, may the worship of God be on the forefront of our attention. May we carry that with us wherever we go. And may the witness and the testimony of all that you've accomplished for us, your grace, your goodness, your forgiveness and cleansing and, and bringing us into faith, may that be the work that, um, that prepares our heart, especially this Christmas season, to share the wonder of your love with the people around us. May we get a chance, Lord, to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ as the worship of God becomes evident in our lives through our obedience and through our witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, if you would please, to Luke chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 857, Luke chapter 2. We're going to take the first 38 verses in, in, in little bits and pieces, kind of three sections of sermons today, kind of interscattered with uh, remembrance of, of what Christ has accomplished for us in, in his death and resurrection, and, and all that that means for us in relationship to, to Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why is it important for us and to us? Well, not just because a baby was born but because that baby became the savior of the world who died for us on the cross, who rose again from the dead, who offers life and forgiveness through his son, Jesus. Luke chapter two, verses one to five. Let me read for us. It says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor over Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This morning, we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus. Luke's simple Straight, uh, straightforward, unembellished, and clear confession 
of the birth event of Jesus doesn't bring any spectacular wonder or mystery. It's just the simple expression of a story. On a night like any other night, in a very obscure village, the town of Bethlehem, was a little baby in a birth that was like every other birth except a child was like no other child who had ever been born before or who would ever be born since. This child was the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus, deity in human flesh, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. In his birth, God entered society. For the first few centuries, the church did not celebrate the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, some of the church fathers forbade it, suggesting that no birth should be celebrated, but only martyrdom, only a commitment to the Lord, only commitment to the gospel and to God. But by the second century, the actual date of Christ's birth had been totally forgotten as the church, offer, uh, church fathers gave various dates for when Jesus was born. Exactly when the early church began to celebrate Christmas on December 25th is not known, but the first recorded reference of the celebration on December 25th happened in the writings of Sextus Julius Africanus early in the third century. The earliest evidence of church celebrating Christmas on December 25th comes in the 4th century manuscripts known as the chronography or the calendar of 354. According to that document, Christmas was celebrated on December 25th, but it was not known for certain the reason why. Some speculate that it was a response to a, a pagan holiday known as the birthday of the unconquered sun, which was celebrated on the exact same day. That festival was inaugurated in the late 3rd century to honor several sun gods, chief of which was Mithras, who possessed a serious threat to the Christian faith. Over the centuries, the, the trappings that are now associated with Christmas began to find their way into this day and expressed by society at large. Gift-giving was an integral part of the pagan winter festival, it became firmly associated with Christmas by the end of the 18th century. Mistletoe was, a sac was sacred to the ancient Druids who attributed to it uh, magical and uh, medicinal power. And kissing under the mistletoe may have derived from a Druid custom where enemies would meet under the mistletoe to make peace and end fighting. The manger scene originated with St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century. The practice of singing carols in, originated in the Middle Ages. The city of Riga in Latvia claims to be the home of the first Christmas tree dating from the year 1510. And each of these traditions that have now been associated with Christmas have virtually obscured the main reason for the celebration. The celebration, of course, of the birth of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to earth. God who was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so often we find even in our, our own Christian homes, the, the trappings of Christmas so often interfere and distract us from the main reason for why we celebrate this holiday. As we look into this passage in Luke chapter 2, God comes 
forefront to our attention. And we see, first of all, the long-awaited promise that had come through the person of Jesus Christ. This long-awaited promise. That's the first point this morning. Jesus, of course, was foretold of the prophets. We have been working through the, the covenants that we've seen from Adam and from Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those old covenant promises. And here he was in the flesh to be celebrated. His coming points to the sovereignty of God. By Jesus coming in the flesh, and by Jesus coming in this way, we see across the surface of this passage and the, the surface of this text, we see the, the handiwork of God in bringing things to pass that only God can make happen. The sovereignty of God prevails over this birth, birth event, and all of the I will statements that we have studied for the last several weeks come to light as we see Jesus born in the flesh, son of David, son of God. And what lies on the surface of this text are all of the impossibilities. The impossibilities that only God in his power, in his sovereignty can work through. We said last week that God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. And as we look at this text, we'll see, in fact, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, not only to make predictions of what will happen, but through his power to work out those details in a way that is inexplicable, inexplicable. So what impossibilities lie on the surface of the text? First, the impossibility of Christ's identity. The impossibility that eludes the scribes and the Pharisees through the duration of the ministry of Christ, that Jesus can both be fully God and fully man. How can someone both be son of God and son of man? Incomprehensible, unintelligible, ridiculous, unless God, through his Holy Spirit, overshadows a virgin. And that virgin conceives and bears a son, and you will call his name Jesus. The impossibilities of God in working through his plan that would be inconceivable for the common man. God carries through. The second impossibility of, of how can all of the prophecies related to Christ's origin be synergized or harmonized? How in the world can all of these seemingly conflicting prophecies of Jesus come to pass in one person, in one event? How can Messiah be from the Galilee of the Gentiles, as Isaiah will say in Isaiah chapter 9, how can he be a Nazarene coming from Nazareth and also be born in Bethlehem in Judea, as Micah chapter 5 verse 2 will say? Two unique places separated by a hundred miles. How can this be true? It's, it's unintelligible. It's incomprehensible unless God sovereignly directs an emperor named Caesar Augustus to make a decree. A decree that all the world should be taxed and that everyone who is living in first century Israel should go to their hometown and be registered. And that a distant son of David named Joseph would need to uproot his family in the worst possible time when his wife is great with child 
and that they would uproot their family and trek down to an obscure little place called Bethlehem where she would give birth to her firstborn son named Jesus. And that Jesus would come from Nazareth to begin with. Nazareth, which was a town that was so obscure, so insignificant, that not anywhere in the Old Testament, not anywhere in the Talmud, and not anywhere by the, the resident historian Josephus who lived in that time ever mentioned the city of Nazareth. Jesus would come from that place. And he would go and be born in a place called Bethlehem, an obscure little town about five to six miles south of Jerusalem. These are the places where Jesus would be born, and these are not the places where normal people go. How would God accomplish this plan? He would accomplish this plan as directed by the sovereign power and plan of God. God would carry through his, his promise. Marvel at the sovereignty of God. Marvel at the power of God to keep his promises and to be faithful. And as we find in verse 4, Joseph, Joseph goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Well, we recognize the significance of, of Joseph tracing his lineage back to David. He is the rightful heir of the throne because of, of his lineage and his history back to David. But we often miss the fact that Mary, too, can trace her lineage back to David. But there's an impossibility built in to the text that most of us have missed. How is it possible for Messiah to have the legal right to the throne through David and through Solomon and yet skip over a future heir of David and Solomon in the name Jeconiah? God had promised Jeconiah because of his unfaithfulness in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, that, that no one from his, from his lineage would take the throne. It says this, None of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. That was the curse of Jeconiah. How was God going to fulfill this promise of allowing Jesus to both have the legal right to the throne but to skip over the king, Jeconiah. Incomprehensible, unintelligible, unless God directs a man named Joseph to be betrothed to a woman named Mary. Mary, whose lineage skips around Solomon and goes through Nathan, not through Solomon. God would be faithful to, to keep his promise. God would be faithful to carry it through. All of the impossibilities that lie in the text, God is showing through his sovereignty, his ability to work around the circumstances and to cause his, his son to be born in just the way that he had prescribed. Only God can do this. And in God's master plan, he chose to send a son, born of a woman, born to save. Jesus' coming points to the sovereignty of God, but Jesus' coming also points to the perfection of God. We see that as the, as the text spills into verse 21. It says this, At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, and when the time it came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The law is mentioned three times in this short section, and it is mentioned five times as you carry this text all the way to verse 39. It's clear that the obedience of Joseph and Mary are integral to Jesus fulfilling all the law and the prophets that he was mandated to do through the, 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 the Mosaic Covenant. We see four ways in which, in just this text, four ways in which Jesus was brought into the covenant community and submitted to the law of God in fulfilling all of the commands that had been given to him through the law of Moses. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the law of Moses, we see, in obedience to this law that was first given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, and then reiterated again in the law in Leviticus chapter 12, Joseph and Mary would circumcise their newborn son eight days after his birth, just the way he was required to happen. This involved ceremonially bringing Jesus into this covenant communion, community. This sign of the circumcision, which was a sign of this covenant, this sign of this relationship, this contract that the people of Israel would have with God in, in showing their conformity to him, Jesus brought into this covenant community in this way. In circumcision, which is a, a symbol of cutting off the flesh, cutting off of sin of oneself, being devoted to God, being made being made distinct as God's people. Second, during this event, Jesus was named. He was named uh, because of clear instructions given by the angel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel shows up to Joseph and says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, which means God saves. Jesus would embody this salvation that would come from God to men. He was also dedicated to God. We see that in this time of, of purification. 33 days after Jesus' circumcision, Jesus was brought by Joseph and Mary to the temple. And this purification element would, take, would have three different elements. First, Mary's purification would require a sacrifice to be given at the Nankinor Gate, this court of women. Normally, this sacrifice, would, which would represent a cleansing of her sin and a devotion of her to God, would happen through the sacrifice of a lamb. We see in our text that it was permitted for those who did not have the means by which to afford a lamb to bring a pigeon and two, two turtle doves. We, we see the economic uh, condition of Mary and Joseph, their humble economic state in bringing this humble offering but they were faithful and obedient. And then the redemption of the firstborn son, which involved five shekels, which was given to the, the, the temple and to the Levites. If you remember, as the children of Israel were leaving uh, the, the, the land of Egypt and they were leaving exile in, in captivity, initially the plan was for every firstborn son from every tribe of Israel to be dedicated to God to service. Jesus would have been of that, uh, of that condition. But in Numbers chapter 3, 
God changes the condition and allows the Levites to represent those firstborn sons from the other tribes. The Levites then would be devoted to, to worship and service of God in the temple, and they would stand in the gap for those other firstborn sons. Finally, there was a consecration of this firstborn son, which was a, a dedicating him to the Lord, devoting him to service. This would have been 40 days after Jesus' birth, 33 days after his circumcision. Mary and Joseph following through the regiment of the law, the requirements that were given by the law of Moses. Jesus became a man. He became a man to show the faithfulness of God to his promises and the ability of God to carry those promises through. Jesus became a man to fulfill the requirements of the law. And Jesus became a man in order that he might pay the penalty for sin. Not just live a perfect life, but to die the kind of death that would pay for the penalty of sin for all who would believe in Jesus by dying on the cross. He would provide safety from the judgment and wrath of God. In Christ, we have salvation through faith. We come to this picture, this picture this morning of the body and blood of Jesus. And Jesus, in coming and becoming a man, offers for us salvation through his death and through his resurrection. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that we celebrate. We'll celebrate a week from now. Thank you for all that means for us, for those who believe. You made a way. You were broken. You were broken for us on the cross. You, you lived the perfect life that we could not live on our own, and you paid the price on the cross for our sin. Thank you for what you've offered for those who believe. And Lord, thank you that the invitation is open for the rest of the world who might also believe. God, through our remembrance this morning, may the work of Christ be put on display and remembered by your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The long-awaited promise had come in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we continue our story, the story of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. And now we see the long-awaited salvation had come. Not just the fulfillment of promise in sending a son, but providing salvation. The salvation that Israel had longed for and yearned for was finally here. Notice, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, his, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, who appears only here in Scripture, 
is evidently an older man living here in Jerusalem. His name, which means God has heard, was a common name in that day. Like the rest of the believing remnant, Simeon was eagerly awaiting the coming of Messiah, whom he terms, who he terms the consolation of Israel. The consolation meaning comfort, encouragement, or solace. Simeon was both looking for personal consolation and comfort and also looking for the comfort that would come to the people of Israel. This long-awaited salvation had come, and the consolation of Israel in Jesus was here. His awaiting heart expresses itself in three different attitudes. We see his righteousness in verse 25. We see his devotion in verse 25, and we see his waiting or anticipation there in, in verse 25. Righteousness, which means to act in conformity with justice, to do what's right without any deficiency or failure, to uphold the moral standard perfectly. This term, which has already been used of Zechariah and Elizabeth and now applied to Simeon. Of course, Simeon was not deficient of failure. Of, of course, Simeon was not perfect, but he, like his father Abraham, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This same heart of faith produced the same righteousness in Simeon. That's why Luke can express of Simeon that he was righteous and devout, because Simeon knew the word and submitted himself to obedience to the word. We find his devotion here. He's pious. He's God-fearing, used only four times in the New Testament and applied here of Simeon. This man who was marked out by his commitment to personal worship. And he has a waiting heart, a waiting heart that is looking and longing for God. This single-minded objective in his heart. You can almost hear the, the remnants of the psalmist. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. Well, that was Simeon, seeking after the Lord. This single-minded devotion to God. To God. What God said, Simeon did. And he did it faithfully. He did it consistently. And so, because of his track record of consistent obedience to God, when the Spirit prompted Simeon's heart, Simeon obeyed. Simeon, it says, was led by the Spirit into the temple. And so when Simeon responds to the Spirit, he sees God. He experiences Christ. He experiences the power of in the presence of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us miss God-appointed moments because we push away and silence the promptings of the Spirit. Not Simeon. Simeon understood his heart to be aligned to God. Now is the moment. Now the time has come. And Jesus is brought into the temple. And the Spirit opens Simeon's eyes to see God in the person of Jesus Christ. This delicate, humble, tiny little baby, dependent baby. And we find in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory, the people of Israel. Salvation had come. This word also only used four times in the New Testament, specifically 
speaking of the salvation of God, as John the Baptist would use it in Luke chapter 3, the next page, Luke 3, 30, uh, Luke 3, 6, where he says, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Same word. God had been preparing. God had been working ahead. God had been conditioning the hearts of the people and helping them to, to be ready for this moment. They were prepared. God had prepared the way. He prepared through prophetic testimony. He prepared through the obedience of Joseph and Mary. He prepared through the birth of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Christ in his ministry. He had prepared through the, com the completion of Herod's temple, which now stood before the people, this place where Jesus would often frequent to point to himself and the ministry that he would bring. Comfort would now be available through the Son, God's Son. Jesus was the consolation of Israel. But Jesus is also the light, the light to the nations, the light to the Gentiles. As we find in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This light for revelation spoken about in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 to 9. This light that had come and had been forecasted and predicted by God, a light that would be seen by the world. God speaks of this through the prophet by saying, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant, speaking of his, of his son, for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from, from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to, be car to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they, they spring forth, I tell you of them. 700 years before Jesus would arrive, God is predicting through the prophet Isaiah what will happen in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus will bring light. He will bring truth. And he will welcome the nations as he promised to Abraham. In you, all the nations will be blessed. They will be blessed through the Son. They will be blessed through the light in Revelation that God will give this word of God to men to help them understand their need for a Savior their sin that had separated them from God, their need for forgiveness that only comes through faith in Christ, their need for fellowship with God that is offered through the Son, Jesus. Of course, that salvation would only come one way. That salvation would only come through a way that no one anticipated. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets predicted, it says, the sufferings of Christ and then the glories that would follow. Those glories would be preceded by suffering. On at least three, three occasions, Jesus foretold of his disciples to, of the suffering that would come. It was unimaginable to them, but it was the path of salvation, the shedding of blood. There was no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. As we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it was salvation that came through obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. This morning we commemorate not only the, the body of Christ, but also the life's blood of Jesus. He made a way 
through the cross by shedding his blood, and because of shedding his blood, we can have forgiveness, those who believe. God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for the offering of your body. We praise you for the shedding of your life's blood, of spending yourself entirely for the sake of love to God and for the sake of salvation to the world. This light for the Gentiles and also a glory for your people Israel. This confirmation that you are who you claim to be in bringing us back to God, making all things new. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does the body and blood of Christ do for us? As we prepare to, to walk out those doors in the back, what changes or what is reinforced? The story continues with another Simeon-like figure there in the temple named Anna. We find her in verses 36 to 38. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. In coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What does a waiting heart look like? What will those who are expecting and longing and wanting the power and presence of God, what will their life be marked by? As with Simeon and as with Anna, there is a devotion to worship. There is a devotion to obedience. There is a dedication to personal sacrifice for the sake of of the glory of God. Here she is in the temple as she has been known to be. Here she is with fasting and praying, it says, night and day. So of course, she is coming in the same moment that Jesus is here because it's just the expression of her heart. This is the place she longs to be. This is the place where, where God, God is and where she meets with God. And so there's no other place that she would rather be. There's no wonder that she gets to enjoy this spectacular event of the, of the coming of Christ. And as Simeon, I imagine, as, is holding Jesus in his arms, Anna comes in and sees this amazing event because of her waiting heart, her expectancy, because of her worshiping heart and wanting and longing for this redemption of Jerusalem. She didn't miss this God-appointed moment because she had acted by obedience and by devotion to consistently be in the place where God was. She enjoyed God's presence this way. And now her waiting heart breaks through in confession. She says, she speaks and gives thanks there in verse 38. She begins to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These two activities mark her life, worship and witness. Her worship of God filled her heart with the, the witness of all that God had done for her and all that God was about to do for the nation of Israel. I wonder if the reminder of these two figures, Simeon and Anna, 
their waiting, expectant, worshiping heart, will that be true of us as God's people, especially during this Christmas season? Will God help us to clear away the distractions, to focus on the the preeminent person of Jesus Christ, and to allow our hearts to be led in worship, like Simeon and Anna, like the psalmist, one thing, I have a desire to the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. And when you seek God, you will find God. If you seek God with all your hearts. Those who seek the Lord will find the Lord as God will allow himself to be known by his people. This morning, may our hearts be lifted in worship And may our worship spill out in confession and witness as we speak of all that God has done for us, those who are recipients of this consolation of Israel, this redemption of Israel, this salvation that has come through the work of God and the power of God for us. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the testimony of your son Jesus coming to earth. And thank you for all that it accomplished for us. May our hearts, those of us who believe in Jesus, May it be driven by a longing to know you more. Thank you, God, that you have made yourself available through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And may the worshiping hearts that we have express themselves in witnessing um, and thanksgiving to the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this morning.